Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 84 for the 3rd 3rd of August 2013. Today is a continuation of the saga of claims made by David Sarita. As with part one, there is no set claim that I'm going to address in this particular episode. It's going to be a clip show format with a bunch of different things discussed, not necessarily in any particular order. Also, for those just joining the fun, I strongly recommend listening to episode 83 immediately preceding this. In that episode, I went over the evolution of many of his claims, how he went from a fairly run-of-the-mill ufologist to a more new-age kind of guy, and it seems that he tended to take advantage of many of the cultural memes, like 2012 or the Fukushima disaster, in order to advance his own brand of pseudoscience. So let's get right into it. In the first interview that I listened to, David was very much touting his work in the field of nuclear fusion, specifically that of helium-3, which has, so far, not proven to be viable yet. However, David claimed that he worked on a hot helium-3 fusion device that was, quote, far more energetic than cold fusion, end quote. This in itself doesn't really make much sense, but let's move on to the next part of the claim. He then claimed that the temperatures reached, quote, 10 billion, that's B billion with a B, degrees, with no heat radiating out of the reactor, end quote. When asked how the reactor contained the heat, David explained that it's contained by charging a magnetic field such that the field throws the heat back into the center of the device. The discussion went on for another 10 minutes or so, but that was all about the science part. I think this is an interesting first claim to address because it's intrigued me, personally, ever since I grew up watching Star Trek The Next Generation. The idea of a magnetic containment makes sense in principle, at least to the mind of a six-year-old. One of the basic issues with fusion is that you generally need very high temperatures and pressures to overcome atoms' natural inclination to stay away from each other. The core of stars can do that. We can sort of do that in a lab, but it takes more energy to manage than we get in return. To my then six-year-old mind, I thought that you can't have a physical substance be an insulator for fusion. We don't have stuff that insulates well enough and where part of it can get hot enough to touch the area where the fusion is happening, especially if it's 10 billion degrees. Now, I'm not a nuclear physicist, I'm not a nuclear engineer, so if there are developments in this field that I don't know about, fine, please email me and I'll let everyone else know in the next episode. But the basic principle of the transfer of heat is still an issue. And 10 billion, with a B, degrees is really, really, really hot. It doesn't really matter what temperature scale you're using at that point, it's hot. The core of the sun is modeled to be about 20 million, with an M, kelvins, or about 1,000, or 500 if you don't want to round, times cooler than what David is claiming that he did on Earth. I'm not sure how you could deal with that kind of heat. I mean, that's where the whole Star Trek idea comes in, where it would be really neat if you were able to make some kind of force field that simply didn't permit molecules from one side to pass through to the other. That would actually take care of the problem of conducting heat, where conduction is where heat transfers to objects physically touch each other and move heat from one to the other. 
It would also take care of the transfer of heat through convection, where two substances physically mix, like ocean currents moving around. But it wouldn't take care of the radiation problem, which is how the sun's energy gets to Earth. You'd somehow have to make your force field completely opaque to all outgoing light. And we're not just talking visible light. But at 10 billion degrees, there'd be a heck of a lot of energy radiating out in the very, 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 very high energy gamma rays that would probably kill you really quickly. My point in this sort of stream of consciousness musing about Star Trek and physics and fusion stuff is to dig into this idea and to talk about the real science. It's an interesting idea. It would be amazing if it worked and we had that technology. But just stating that literally a Star Trek-like technology exists as though you're talking about whether it's raining outside isn't good enough. Maybe it is for coast to coast, but it's not good enough in the real world. And it makes one think that the person making the claim doesn't really understand everything that it entails. Continuing with the basic misunderstanding of physics, in 2005, David made the following statement. There's an enormous amount of energy in the background of space. And if there's energy in an Einstein equation, there has to be mass, because mass and energy are equivalent in equals mc squared. It's an interesting idea that if space has energy, then because E equals mc squared, energy equals the mass times speed of light squared, then space must be made of mass, so it produces inertia, which slows you down. The fabric of space is complicated. I'll leave that to a cosmologist to explain. But this basic misunderstanding of E equals mc squared is something that I think is worth talking about. The equation is actually a short version where the mass energy equivalence principle's full version also includes momentum. So it's actually E equals mc squared plus p times c, where p is the physics symbol that we use for momentum. What the equation means conceptually is that matter can be thought of as frozen energy and that mass or energy can be converted to the other one with the scaling factor of the speed of light squared. It doesn't mean that there's the sum of both at once, and it doesn't mean that the existence of one means that you also have to have the other. That's the problem with David Sarita's statement, that because there's light in space, it means that there's energy, which also means that there's mass, which would slow down a spacecraft, which is why we can't go to the speed of light. It's simply wrong and based on a misunderstanding of E equals mc squared. He almost seems to want to do a, a space equals E plus mc squared. Yet, he tries to tell you that he worked with the bestest and the brightest nuclear physicists on the planet, throwing out names like Glenn Seaborg, for whom the element Seaborgium is named and who earned the 1951 Nobel Prize in Chemistry. Later in that same interview in 2005, there was another misunderstanding, this time with how the expansion of the universe affects the cosmic microwave background radiation. You've you got to consider, before we go to the Big Bang, the, the, what's known as the cosmic microwave background radiation viewed by astronomers and radio astronomers right now pervades the entire creation with a fairly constant temperature. I mean, it fluctuates a little bit. But according to the Big Bang theory, the universe started at a you know, sub-Planck length sphere, which is so small we can't even imagine, and exploded into this enormity of mass, which initially had a huge temperature and energy uh, signal, which eventually, over time, the birth of time, cools down. So according to the Big Bang Theory, the background radiation should be a 
variation from hot to cold, from the point of origin of the Big Bang to the gradual expansion and cooling of the universe. But instead, it's even temperature everywhere. So this problem has not been solved by the current theory of relativity. This is perhaps a more difficult concept to understand than the equals mc squared stuff, which is why I thought that it would be interesting to go into also. The basic idea is that when the universe expanded enough to become cool enough for matter to freeze out from energy, it was no longer opaque to light, and light could stream freely. That's the cosmic microwave background radiation, or CMB or CMBR. Just be careful when using the CMB abbreviation if you're talking with a geophysicist. CMB also can mean the core mantle boundary of a planet. Anyway, uh, the basic idea that goes along with this is that there is no special point in the universe, location-wise. From any given location, any given point, it will appear as though the universe is expanding away from that point. As you go further back in time by looking at objects that are farther and farther away, it's the same in all directions because the universe is expanding away from that point. So the CMB, the Cosmic Microwave Background Radiation, is light from when the universe first became transparent, and everything is spreading away from everything else. Put those two together, and you effectively have a local universe around Earth that's spherical. The boundary of that sphere can be thought of as where the CMB formed and from where it is radiating to us. That means that the CMB photons that we're actually looking at are around 13.7 billion years old, and they've stretched out through billions of light years of space, which means that they should all appear roughly the same uniform temperature. The misunderstanding of David's seems to be that there is some special point where the universe started, and that if, you say, you looked at the Andromeda galaxy, it has CMB photons that started there. And if you look at a more distant galaxy, it has CMB photons that started there. And so on and so forth, giving you a range of temperatures. But no, that's not the case. For the reason I explained, the CMB has a pretty much uniform temperature of about 2.73 kelvins, I think. Now this is, of course, with several important caveats. For example, Earth is moving, the Sun is moving, the galaxy is moving, the local group is moving, etc., etc., relative to the CMB, so that there are slight shifts that have to be taken into account. And the other caveat is that it's a uniform temperature, except for the very, very small differences, which is what the COBE and the WMAP and the Planck satellite all measured in order to better understand the age, structure, and composition of the universe. But the point is that those are tiny variations on the order of millikelvins, as opposed to the hundreds of kelvins that it seems as though David is trying to say is some weird mystery that we can't explain. Keeping on with the basic physics theme, there's another general claim that Sarita makes about quantum mechanics and entanglement and other stuff, but one of the specific claims is something that I've heard elsewhere. An alleged experiment is where a mother and a child were separated. Someone then induced pain in the child, like sticking a needle in them, and supposedly the mother reacted faster than the speed of light, instantly, as measured by an EEG, which is an electroencephalogram. So this would seem to imply that faster-than-light communication is somehow possible and that the mother and child are quantumly entangled. 
What's easy for me is that I did a blog post on this in 2010 around this very claim made by someone else. In the alleged experiment, the mother and child were separated by a distance of 100 kilometers. That's somewhere around 62-ish miles or so. This also means that the light would have had to have taken about 0.00033 seconds, or 0.33 milliseconds, or 330 microseconds for light, or anything traveling at the speed of light, to travel from the mother to the child, or vice versa. Therefore, in order for this experiment to be conducted, three conditions must, and I repeat, must be met. First, the person or the machine pricking the child must be timed to the sub millisecond accuracy, preferably to the tens or hundreds of microseconds accuracy. Two, the mother's EEG must also have a resolution on the order of at least 100 microseconds. Based on an article that I've found, the best EEGs around have resolutions on the milliseconds, or around 10 times worse than is needed for this experiment. Three, the clocks at the two locations must also be synchronized and have resolutions better than on the order of 100 microseconds. Now, what can ask the likelihood of all three of these conditions being met? And, given that some of the equipment needed, mainly the resolution on the EEG, doesn't even exist as far as I can tell, then I feel fairly confident that this claimed experiment, a claim made by many people, did not actually take place and generate the results as claimed. Changing gears a bit, I want to talk about harmonic codes and sacred geometries. According to David, of course. As with many people who enjoy numerology, David seems to put a special mysticism in repetition of numbers or repeating numbers. He also seems to think that he's able to measure things exactly with a caliper or ruler, even if it's something displayed on his computer screen. The setup for the importance of this comes from a March 2009 interview where now, try to follow me here. He claims that rocks store energy from the sun, we wear rubber shoes, so therefore we've lost contact with that energy stored in the rocks from the sun. David, of course, has managed to capture the natural vibrations of that energy and put them into his quantum pendants, which is why he sells them for so much money, and they cost multiples of 111 Canadian dollars. These quantum pendants have helped increase people's energy levels, supposedly. So how does he know what crystals will do what, and that they actually have these harmonic codes, you might ask? I know I did, I was quite skeptical of his claim. Well, he has a foolproof method, of course. He measures the sides of the crystal, and he uses very precise calipers down to the millimeter. That's a thousandth of a meter, and roughly the size of the wire in a paperclip. And then, he did division. Nature could never be wrong. And when I did the math clockwise versus counterclockwise on the crystal, the numbers it generated on the ratios were, oh my God, like for example, side one was 4 divided by 3.3, I got 1.2121212212, like a harmonic repetition, right? And the next side was 3.3 um, centimeters divided by 3.6, I got 0.9116666666, and I got all these sixes. And on and on this went, no matter where I took a natural crystal and did the math clockwise and anticlockwise, I got these codes that were repetitive infinities, like 108, 108, 108, 108, and they go forever. 
And I thought nature produced the waves that produced this crystal were created with these harmonic codes. So what would happen if I designed a harmonic code generator using those same multiple frequencies in a set? The only reason that I'm even talking about this fairly ridiculous claim is that I see it elsewhere. For example, it's why Richard C. Hoagland thought, or at least claimed in public, that the Norway spiral from a few years ago was evidence of a hyperdimensional physics vortex. He took pictures of the spiral on his computer screen, held up a ruler, and then measured different dimensions around it, and got those repeating harmonics by doing multiplication, division, whatever, and then he claimed that these repeating harmonics were special magical hyperdimensional numbers. Now, it should be obvious to most, but if it isn't, you can't do that. There's such a thing as measurement coarseness. We can't measure things that precisely. If you're measuring to the one millimeter level and you measure 12 millimeters, then when you do whatever math you do to it, you should be quoting results to two digits or two significant figures. For example, when I drive, I look at how far I've gone since the last tank of gas and then how much my tank takes to fill. I drive a few hundred miles and my car's odometer reads out to the one-tenth of a mile. The gas pump reads out to the one one-thousandth of a gallon, and usually I take more than ten. So I have four significant figures on my car, the hundredths place, the tenths place, the ones place, and the first decimal point. I have five significant figures on the gas pump, the tenths place, the ones place, the tenths place, the hundredths place, and the thousandth place. I can only then calculate the miles per gallon to four significant figures. I can only say I drove, for example, 29.43, four significant figures, miles per gallon. I can't say that I drove 29.43572139 and give out all of those numbers that my calculator gives me because I don't have that much precision. It's the exact same thing here. Oh, but, but if there was any doubt, David has had multiple PhDs look at his work and they tell him that yes, these harmonic codes are how the universe really works. Next, I wanted to go into a few more of his misunderstandings of basic astronomy. After all, this is the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast, not a basic physics and basic science podcast. Although, speaking of which, if anyone does have suggestions for a good abbreviation for the podcast name, please let me know. I haven't really figured out a good one yet. Anywho, the first is a claim about missing mass in the universe. The lead-up to this clip is that he was making the case that hydrogen is important and it makes up the bulk of the universe, uh, roughly 75% of it. In my notes, I have written down, and then he goes off the deep end. Now, I, I don't know if you heard this, but scientists have actually found a big chunk of the missing matter of the universe, and they found it's ultraviolet hydrogen. It's hydrogen mm -hmm. vibrating at a higher frequency or higher temperature. I think I can be quick about this one. Um, no. What he said doesn't make any sense, and it's not true. But David really does like the argument from ignorance. He has a thing for claiming about what dark matter really is. Here's a fun clip from December 2009. And here's a whopper. This is what reported October 30th, 2009 on the New York Times by Dennis Overbite, and what happened is this satellite that NASA was observing the galactic center. Now, this is another amazing thing, is as we're coming to 2012, 
we're getting more data and more incredible quantum leap understandings of what's happening in the galactic center than we've ever had in the history of the world. So NASA's W, it's called the WMAP satellite. Actually, they actually discover something in the center of the galaxy that shouldn't be there. Instead of this supposed black hole that's supposed to be devouring everything, something is utterly happening that doesn't make any sense at all, that agrees with the model that I've been, you know, that I've discovered for many, many years now, and also is in my book, Differentials, the, the last show we ever did together was, we talked about the hidden harmonic codes of the universe. The hidden harmonic codes of the universe and differentials predicted that dark matter would transform itself through the differential between dark energy and dark matter and actually create matter, visible matter, out of what was apparently invisible, dark matter. And that's exactly what this satellite detected in the center of the galaxy. I just about, you know, fell off my chair when I read this because they're seeing the birth of new matter decaying from dark matter in the center of the galaxy rather than the destruction of matter. They're seeing the birth of it. The actual birth of matter. This, this just turned all, when you read the article, you realize all of these physicists are completely confused because now we, we have a conduit or a circuit pathway for dark matter to actually create more matter, which actually explains how the universe is expanding rather than it being confined to a limited or finite amount of matter. It's constantly converting from solid matter, you know, into light basically back into physical matter, which is what Einstein, his theory, predicted. Having the power of the Internet at my disposal, I have linked to both the article in question from the New York Times and the published astrophysical journal paper in question. It is not how David has represented it. No, we have not discovered dark matter creating baryonic matter. That's the normal matter that you and I and everything else that we really know of are composed of. The authors of the paper do suggest that it is possible that what they are seeing is the decay of dark matter particles into baryonic matter, but they don't actually know, and as far as I can tell, this is definitely not an accepted view. To quote a member of the team that runs the telescope that took the data that these authors used, quote, in my opinion, they are skating on very thin ice, end quote. The observation is a haze of gamma rays near the galactic center, no, not replacing the black hole at the galactic center, there is still a black hole there. I don't know where David is getting the idea that the black hole in the galaxy's center doesn't exist. Anyway, the gamma rays detected by the Fermi telescope coincide with a microwave source that was previously detected by the WMAP satellite, which is what David was talking about, thinking that that was the detection in question. Anyway, the WMAP satellite was looking at the cosmic microwave background radiation that we discussed earlier, but while this microwave source does coincide with the gamma rays, it could just be a case of correlation is not equal to causation. The issue is that the center of the galaxy is a virtual hell's kitchen of high-energy astrophysics, separating out every single known astrophysical source that could be contributing to these will take years. And even if we find that there's no known source that could be contributing, it doesn't mean that dark matter decaying into baryonic matter is the right answer. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that it's not the right answer. It is possible that what they are seeing is the decay or the byproduct of the decay of dark matter into baryonic matter. 
that's what the news article is going to play up, this really cool, sexy result with dark matter. But, as I said, there could be more mundane explanations. And this is in no way, shape, nor form confirmation of anything that David has said. To wrap things up for the astronomy portion, I'm going to give you another clip with no debunking at all. I debated on this one whether or not to include it, whether or not to go through debunking it, and then decided that it would be good to play it because it goes into something that probably every skeptic knows about. How much of our brain do we actually use? The number of missing, it's 95% of the universe is missing. And we only use 5% of our brains, apparently. I mean, so which means we're, there's, we're only seeing 5% of the universe and we're only using 5% of our brain's capacity. There, there, you get the same numbers. So maybe the reason we can't observe the 95% the missing mass is because of the particular state of our brains. Now, as we become more enlightened, I think we're going to start to see more and more of those multi-layers to our universe. The final topic that I want to address in this episode is one that I touched on last episode as well. Arguments from authority. Why am I addressing it again? It's because it's very important as critical thinkers to be able to identify it and to recognize it that it's useless. We need evidence, and the plural of anecdote is not evidence. The plural of authorities is not good evidence. First up are two clips that David used to back up his claim that the Tesla death ray is real and that it's our defense against aliens. They're expert witnesses, in my opinion. You cannot question a, a military officer like Gordon Cooper or Colonel Philip Corso when they say this is happening. Why would they just make this stuff up? There's just no, there's nothing. It's pure nonsense if they were making it up, and I really don't believe they would. And the debunkers just come out and say, well, they're making it up, and, you know, he was crazy, and it's not really real. But who were they? Who were debunkers? A military man cannot give a false testimony in, in a court of law. Why would they make this stuff up? Who knows? Maybe it's notoriety, or maybe they're just batshit crazy. And anyone can give false testimony. Saying that a military man cannot give false testimony in a court of law is like saying that a priest can't diddle a kid in the altar room. Uh, duh, they're not supposed to, it's illegal and immoral, but that doesn't stop them. Next is the lone amateur scientist claim. And that's what I like about the lone scientist. You know, I, I personally trust these these lone scientists almost more, I hate to say it, than NASA for telling us the truth about what's going on. Yeah, that's right. The armchair scientist, in this case, who saw a compass needle move one day away from north and claimed that it was a giant magnetic temporary pole shift that no one else saw, is somehow more right than everyone else in the world who didn't record this. Low-hanging fruit, perhaps, but important nonetheless to expose for what it is. Now, this episode, the last, what, 27 and a half minutes or so, has been a long hodgepodge of different ideas and different claims. And there are many that I left out, like his claim that solar flares on the sun lead to a non-specific earthquake or volcanoes on Earth, and that this is a correlation is not equal to causation, as well as a sharpshooter, as well as cherry-picking fallacies. Or that in the 1900s, the magnetic pole moved 10 kilometers per year, but in the 2000s, it's moving at 40 kilometers per year, which is a fallacy where you take an average in different places. Or there's the numerology in Greenland with the early sunrise of 2011. Or that birds are dying because noctilucent clouds are poisonous, and they're going lower in the atmosphere and sucking birds into them and killing them. 
or that because our bodies are made mostly of hydrogen, and so we're made of the same stuff as the sun, that we can communicate instantaneously with the sun. Now, with all of that in mind, there is one more logical fallacy that I'd like to discuss related to all of this, and that's the fallacy fallacy. No, I, I didn't just stutter. The fallacy fallacy is where you point out all of the logical fallacies that someone has used, and you then say that, therefore, their conclusions are wrong. That's a fallacy in and of itself. All because someone's argument is horrible, it doesn't mean that their conclusions are wrong. For example, I could say that the sky is blue because Dr. So-and-so told me it is. It doesn't mean the sky isn't blue, but I did commit an argument from authority, logical fallacy. Or, as another example, I could say that I weigh a lot, therefore I'm tall. Now that could be true, in my case it's not, but it's poorly argued because it's a correlation is not equal to causation fallacy. Throughout this and the previous episode, I've pointed out a lot of logical fallacies that David has used, and I've done a bit of my own ad hominem mocking him here and there. That doesn't mean that his arguments are wrong. His arguments are wrong for the other reasons that I pointed out. That's why this podcast exists the way it does. I try to not only tell you what we know, but how we know what we know, to quote Astronomy Cast. As with other fallacies, though, this is important to be aware of, and this is especially important for skeptics to be aware of, because we like to point out logical fallacies, and we often then assume that if we can find a logical fallacy in someone's argument, that their conclusions are wrong. That doesn't mean that. It's just an argument that was poorly made. Now I'd like to end this segment with one final clip, just illustrating some of David's fairly crazy trains of thought that lead to a land of word salad. He says this following clip after talking about an ESP experiment. Now this leads Dr. Tiller to believe, and Claude Swanson and many others, that consciousness is more subtle than even the smallest, the highest frequency, smallest wavelengths we've ever measured, which is beyond the Planck scale, and that means, oh my, I mean, what that means to a physicist is utterly outrageous. Oh my God, they, the fact that it can go through anything with 100% accuracy, no resistance, that does mean that we've eliminated the hypothesis that when Heisenberg and Niels Bohr came to Einstein and said our minds are affecting the results of the experiments, it is not the bio-light emissions. It's more subtle than that. But when you use the word subtle, in comparison to frequencies, it actually means more powerful, not weaker, as the word suggests. In part one of this two-part series, I played a clip from David about his own personal argument from authority, where he claimed that he worked with the most brilliant minds in nuclear physics. Expat, a guest that I've had on twice now, has done some digging and found out a bit more. The scientist in question for whom David worked was Bogdan Maglich at High Energy Micro Devices Incorporated. David seems to have been a little confused about what Dr. Maglich actually did. Maglich was not the inventor of helium-3 fusion, and he was not at MIT with David. Maglich's invention, which went nowhere, was the Migmatron, which was a self-colliding ion-beam fusion reactor. 
It was developed at Lawrence Radiation Lab, not MIT. And again, David worked on funding, not at all on the science. Also in the last episode, I stated that David was challenged about the Pleiades by a well-known caller into Coast to Coast, uh, Bill from Hartford, Connecticut, who's an atheist and amateur astronomer. and He, for some reason, always feels the need to mention both of those. Um, anyway, I mentioned that David was challenged about the Pleiades by this caller, and that he was very flustered in his response, and he again responded with an argument from authority. I didn't play that clip, but in the last week or two, I was asked if I would play it on this episode. You asked for it, now you got it. My, my point is, you don't know space and astronomy. Bear with me, just bear with me. The basis of what you said relates to Billy Meyer. You talked about Pleiades, Pleiades star system, or uh, just as Billy Meyer did many decades ago. Now, you should know, if you know anything about space and astronomy, as I know, that Pleiades is not a star system, it's not a solar system, it's not even the seven sisters that people see with the naked eye. The Pleiades is a massive star cluster of over 100,000 stars. If you look at it through a huge Earth-based telescope or even the Hubble Space Telescope. So my question to you specifically is, what star of those 100,000 or more stars did you send the so-called signal to? Merope. Pardon? I didn't hear you. Merope. How, how did you... You know, you, you want to know how I did it. I've given some clues here and some proof in quantum physics that that's faster than light signals have been detected by some of the best physicists in the world. In fact, I even gave a, a piece of evidence of, of Dr. Raymond Chow, and that was publicized, that he got photons, which carry information, to go faster than the speed of light using crystal. And I'm also showing you how William Shockley, who invented the transistor with John Bardeen and, and Will Braddon, gave birth to, a, to you know, fa super, super clear and fast radio telecommunications because of a crystal. So... I'm showing you also a little bit of a clue about biological systems, but when it comes to the math, of course I know what the Pleiades are. Of course I know there's, there's literally hundreds well, of... Well, and you answered his question with the star that you popped this at. And I, I know... By the way, how... I, I've never called you David, ever uh, in my I life. Know, no, listen, I worked Dr. for David. Nobel Prize winning physicists for over 10 years. I've studied quantum physics for longer than most people spend in all their years in school. My, well, but you can understand, David, how people would think this is a tall tale here. Well, of course, right? and when, when Tesla, the father of radio, who in the Chicago World's Fair in 1893 uh, sent the first human radio broadcast successfully before Marconi did, and this is, this is the U.S. Supreme Court ruled June 21, 1943, the Tesla Lodge and Stone are the true fathers of radio. And then... Radio evolved to transistorized radio, which became much, much more clear. Tesla said he received intelligent radio signals with information in the signal from Venus. Now, when Tesla said that, no one believed him, yet he wrote letters about it, but he's the guy who invented radio. Tesla doesn't have a Ph.D. Tesla is mostly a self-taught electrical engineer. I was the director of the Tesla Foundation. I spoke in Congress on the Tesla Foundation on nuclear fusion. I was around Nobel Prize winners for over a decade of my life. And I'm telling you, I know how to build radios, and I know why they don't work, and I know why they don't have the ability to send a signal faster than the speed of light. It's an interesting response. 
And after that two-minute stream of consciousness defense, David later went on to claim that we don't know the orbit of a comet, that it was very close, and so we had no idea if it had hit the moon or wiped out a satellite when it came close just a few days earlier. This was a clear example of not knowing how science works, or even how the news media works, just after claiming that of course he knows what he's talking about, and that Bill was just trying to steal his invention from him because he asked him about what star he was beaming his quantum signal to in the Pleiades, or, or something like that. Yeah, as I said, I listened to this guy for 40 hours. You guys owe me. <laughs> anyway, uh, with that said, it's time for The Puzzler, where each episode I do attempt to ask a critical thinking question based loosely on the material discussed in the main segment. The last two episodes' puzzlers have been about Richard Hoagland's Accutron watch experiment. I mentioned that Richard Hoagland actually claims the orientation relative to the spinning sphere matters. If that's the case, how would you modify the basic design of the experiment that I had outlined? And what additional things would you need to keep track of? Thank you to the current star of the class, Warwick, who wrote in with a pretty good answer. He wrote that to detect and measure if the orientation to the eclipse or whatever event is important, then I would use a setup with three mutually orthogonal tuning forks or watches, i.e. all at 90 degrees to each other. The whole assembly would have to be mounted on a tracking mount so that the orientation to the celestial object in question could be maintained before, during, and after the eclipse. To be really useful in gathering data, I would use two additional sets of three mutually orthogonal tuning forks, one offset by 30 degrees in each dimension, and the other offset by 60 degrees. That would give us some data points looking at exactly how the effect varies with orientation, if it varies with the sine of the angle, for example. Given the complexity of the apparatus, two or three duplications of the entire setup would be a good check to guard against anomalies or noise being interpreted as data. That's a lot of watches, but if the effect is there and you could prove it, the Nobel Prize money would cover the cost. I think that's a pretty darn good answer, and this means in other words, if Richard's hyperdimensional physics really worked the way that he claimed, then you would need to have your setup at fixed angles and measure it in multiple dimensions and directions relative to the event. You can't just have the watch in a bag and have it swing from your shoulder as you walk around Mexico, which is what he did in late 2012. With that in mind, and given that this is a 39-minute episode so far, there's no puzzler this time. The next episode will probably be about whether blood moons occurring in 2014 and 2015 on Jewish holidays is a sign of the apocalypse. So if you have any ideas for puzzler topics on that, of course, as always, please send them in. Finally, there are two announcements. Again, I will be at the TELUS Science Museum in Georgia, that's near Atlanta, the capital, uh, speaking on Friday, September 5th. I'll be giving a very abridged version of the TAM workshop on imaging for skeptics. I really don't know what they have planned for me during the day on Friday, but if anyone is in the area, please come by. Their theater seats over 200, and I'd hate to be talking to an empty room. If enough people email me and are interested in some sort of meetup, I'm sure that can also be arranged. Also, thank you to all of those who have taken the time to write a review or rate the podcast on iTunes and other locations. And especially thanks to everyone who writes in to tell me what they think about it. 
That wraps up this topic on the 84th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time, and how much craziness I listened to. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website, or send an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website. You can leave a comment on my blog post for the episode or the Facebook page of the podcast, and you can even tweet me, at PseudoAstro. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, again, please write, review, and rate this podcast on iTunes or your other podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, then tell lots and lots of people. Spread the love. 